This is The Way Forward. I'm Judy Olian, president of Quinnipiac University. Our podcasts are a collection of thoughtful conversations with trailblazers who are seeking solutions and seeing opportunities in today's challenges. Today's our first episode. I spent some time with Connecticut Governor Ned Lamond a few weeks ago to learn how he approaches his leadership responsibilities to the people and economy of Connecticut, his actions through the COVID-19 crisis, and thoughts on Black Lives Matter and police reform. We talked about K through 12 and higher education reopening in Connecticut, and even the possibility of a Quinnipiac Yale hockey game this winter. Please join us. Hello, Governor. We're delighted that you're here. You're our first guest, really, and there couldn't be a more appropriate guest as we talk about the way forward. And I wanted to really explore with you the challenges of leading in a crisis and really to draw on your background a little bit about how you learn to lead. And I've read up on all you've done since you were a baby. And you've had a life of business, but you've also had a life of public service. So what attracted you after business into public service? I've always been involved in public service. I was a selectman and board of finance, but I was sort of local, um, not really thinking about big elected office, more um, ways that I could stay involved locally. It's part of a good balance in life. You you do what you can in the private world. And I, I started up a company. I was very fortunate to do that. But I've always wanted to see if I could make a difference in the public space. And um, then it was about um, uh, 14 years ago with the invasion of the, uh, Iraq that got me a little more statewide passionate on a big topic that got me into a political world that I really hadn't expected to find myself. But I think I felt pretty strong on that issue. So it was later on issues driven. What is it that you took from your business life that prepared you for politics? It's sort of interesting. Uh, Massachusetts has generally had business people who go in the governor, and Connecticut has generally had uh, political people, legislators and congressmen. So two very different uh, uh, routes and two very different sort of mindsets as you uh, approach what's, uh, what's happening. I mean, I came to state government as, a, as more of a business person, as you said. So you know, I was focused on... Um, efficient delivery of what we got to do, how I can raise the quality of education, STEM and and the such. Um, When it came to what I thought was going to be the first big confrontation, given my background in IT, I sort of thought I was worried about a cyber attack. And some of the testing we did in the emergency operations center was what happens if uh, the Albanians uh, start trying to shut down our power grid? How do we react? And and Judy, then that got me in contact with a Andrew Cuomo and our fellow governors, because we realized a cyber attack does not stop at the border. And before we knew it, we were on the phone, you know, every week with the pandemic. So you took some kind of skill set about anticipatory risk aversion, risk management, and you brought that into public service, public office. So managing risks and thinking about that in the future. Well, you got to think out a little way, that's for sure. I think one of the problems with government in general is it's very short-term oriented, although business has a lot of those same afflictions as well. So you're right. I tried to see what are the icebergs we've got to confront. I mean, is it pensions? Is it the economy? We have a lot of icebergs in our state. Uh, COVID took us by surprise, but 
We responded really quickly. We have an amazing academic community, uh, Quinnipiac at the top of that list, and we have a pretty good business community. So we got the best we could as we tried to deal with this uh, crisis. So I'm going to get to COVID in a sec, but I want, I want to talk about another part of leadership that is everyone's part of leadership, and that is dealing with disappointments, setbacks, failures. You've had uh, your share, as every one of us has had. You didn't win every election that you, that you went for. You haven't won every issue that you put before the legislature. Um, how do you deal with setbacks as part of your movement forward? I guess you get back up, uh, dust yourself off, and get right back in the game. Um, one thing, I mean, you know, I, I built telecommunications systems all over the country. I built one at a Quinnipiac many, many years ago as well. And um, one of the things I found in the business world is you win some and you lose some. Right. But uh, at the end of the day, you still stay close with all your fellow competitors because uh, you never know, you might be partners the next day going forward. And, um, you know, politics is a little bit different. It's a little bit more of a blood sport, you know, winners and losers. And uh, that, that has not been my mindset here. Every day um, we win an issue or lose an issue, you get back together and uh, you say, on oh, the next issue, we could be allies. And so you managed to protect yourself emotionally from those losses and really just take it as part of the cost of doing business? Yeah, my wife doesn't. She takes this stuff to heart. <laughs> you know, she takes the political hits to heart. She um, she lives it and breathes it. And I, I guess you're right about that, Judy. I'm a little more, um, this is just the game we're in. And um, I've been very fortunate. And um, if something happens politically that doesn't, you know, work out, it's not the end of the world for me, but I want every day to do the right thing and I don't have to make compromises along the way. Okay, so now we're going to turn to COVID a little bit. You might remember May, March 6th, which was when uh, I think you stood at Danbury Hospital, announced the first case of a positive COVID case in our state. So what, what were the first things that came to your mind about what you had to do, what you had to plan for? What did you think it would be at that moment in time? Yeah, that day in Danbury Hospital really brought it home. I mean... Like, uh, like all of us, I had seen this pandemic. I was reading about it in Wuhan province. Nobody's quite sure where that was. Then something happened at the uh, Kirkland Nursing Home in Washington State. And, um, you know, relatively early on, you realize we better watch out for this. This is getting closer. And, uh, you know, for me as a governor, I had to do the best I could to convince people we got to prepare for this. Maybe you can't see it. Maybe you don't know anybody that's been hit by it so far. Maybe Wuhan's a long way away, but we got to think about this. And uh, that day in Danbury brought it home because that was at a hospital. It was somebody from Westchester County working at Danbury Hospital, first person infected. All of a sudden we knew it's here and it's now. And so what was the first thing that came to mind in terms of the action requirements for you? What do you say to yourself, I got to do this or that? What was the first thing in terms of implementation, execution of a response? I know what you know and know what you don't know. And um, so, like I said, it was somebody that came up from New York. So I talked to Andrew Cuomo. I said, this thing is uh, pretty close to home. Then as you remember, there was a big flare up in New Rochelle right across the border from uh, Fairfield County. That was probably uh, one of the real epicenters. And then what I had to do, as I said before, was get people who knew more about the subject than I did and listen. 
first thing we did, of course, was the hospitals. And early on, there were lawsuits between the state and the hospitals. They weren't even talking to each other. We took care of all that, got that settled. And then within a month, we had all the hospitals at the table working together. And, you know, they were competitive too, you know. Um, you know, Hartford Hospital and Yale New Haven, they're always jogging for market share. And uh, we had to say, enough, we're in this thing together. And, you know, when Stanford Hospital got hit and hit hard, it was Hartford Hospital was helping out with masks and nurses and vents. And then uh, the shoe was on the other foot a couple of months later. So I think the state really rallied and learned to work to- together in a way they never had before. So, Governor, one of the most difficult and, and challenging things about COVID is that it has a, an impact across pretty much every aspect of life, whether it's the economy in, in the health area, whether it's exacerbating racial divides, ability to continue servicing the citizens of the state and, of course, all of the businesses. Um, how do you decide with this broad swath of activities that have to be fixed, that have to be energized, that have to be activated, what you're going to do first, second, and third, because this is truly a system-level crisis. We decided priority one, two, and three uh, is public health. Uh, There was no other priority we had. We weren't going to open early because of public health, um, uh, because of the economy, or something like that. And we also realized, I think, early on that there was no getting the economy back if you didn't deal with the public health issues first, consumers weren't gonna go back, employees weren't gonna go back. So that's why we really led with that as a priority. All I did was talk to the hospitals for the first uh, few weeks. And then we brought in the leading epidemiologists, infectious disease people, talked to our fellow governors, seen how can we try and contain this in a way that allows us to get back on our feet. And um, we were pretty strict, a uh, lot stricter than other states, I might say. Our region has, not just Connecticut. And so far, we're uh, getting uh, the fruits of that, a much lower infection rate than other places. We're down a little over 1% right now. Uh, but I'm worried. As I said before, you look at Arizona and Florida, these people flying in, you see the protests. There's a lot of opportunities. And there's very little margin for error. That's what I always have to remind people. There's very little margin for error. Take it seriously. So I lived in business schools for a lot of my academic life, most of my academic life. I can tell you, I never saw an MBA case study that said, how do you manage a pandemic? I presume you didn't do that when you were at Yale SOM. How do you manage a pandemic? So have you ever had a crisis, not of this magnitude, but at least gives you a springboard to be able to draw on, on how to manage a crisis like this? The only thing I believed in my gut is you better let people know in real time what you're thinking and why you're thinking it especially with covid everything was changing every day and you you could saw you could see the um germ warfare coming right up from new rochelle granite stanford new haven it was like an invading army and uh we did every afternoon at four o'clock we did a press briefing And I I didn't have all the answers, but at least people got an idea of how we're thinking about it, why we're thinking about it this way. And I hope it gave people a certain amount of comfort. We didn't pretend to be know-it-alls. And then, you know, again, I got, um, you know, Dr. Koh and the epidemiologist. So I had the experts talking it through. They sometimes talk a little um, academic. Mm -hmm. Then I try and translate what I heard and why I think it was important and how we act upon that good advice. Yeah, I have to say that um, in any crisis, everyone always 
talks about communicate, communicate, communicate. You might be nauseating to yourself in terms of repeating yourself, but it's never enough uh, to the audience. And I've been so impressed with your daily press conferences. Uh, and frankly, how many executive orders have you issued um, since this all started? I think we've issued about 60 plus. Um, most of them sort of deregulated things. We, we had to um, mean you didn't have to go get your license renewed uh, every uh, three years. I get, gave you an extra three months of time. You know, when it came to the hospitals and the nursing homes, we gave them some legal protections because they were so nervous. I mean, they didn't have enough nurses. They didn't have gowns. We were bringing in folks from medical school to help with this sort of mass unit that was going on. And they were worried as hell about getting us sued. So we had to give people a little sense of confidence so they could go forward. Yeah. And the executive orders have been really uh, remarkably nimble ways of addressing residents' problems. Uh, I, I commend you on that. There's a question here before I, from, from somebody um, who's watching about K through 12, public K through 12 schools. What are you going to do this fall? What can you tell us? Uh, we're going to open and assuming that COVID behaves as it has for the last uh, uh, 30, 60 days, uh, we're going to open on time with a regular um, schedule. K through 12, K through 8, first of all, we're thinking about um, as close to a normal school day as we can. Uh, we're going to probably keep cohorts smaller so one fifth grade class doesn't hang out with all the other fifth grades just so you can narrow the scope of uh, who you have interactions with, at least when you're indoors. Uh, high schools, that's a little bit tougher, uh, Judy. So, um, you know, because we go from class to class, as you know, so there'll be a little bit more distance learning there, a little more uh, social distancing, obviously a requirement of the mass. And then college, well, you know this, um, you know, better than I do, but you were part of that, um, the committee we put together. Uh, Rick Levin helped on that as well. Uh, we want to get our colleges back. Obviously, with the dormitories, we're thinking long and hard. I look to your advice on that. But I, I think we're going to try and provide testing for everybody that has to go back, certainly into a residential setting, and make that as normal an experience as possible, comma, unless there's a flare-up. And I ask, you know, Quinnipiac and, and all our other colleges, think about a plan B if something changes. Well, just from our end, we, we are developing a very flexible mode of teaching, which will be... Uh, dual mode online and on in person and present with the default being that we're in class and on ground uh, with the right personal protections and distances and so forth. Uh, one of the things we're hoping that the state helps with is testing also for private institutions, not just public institutions. But here's a question. Um, uh, the Quinnipiac poll just came out yesterday and one of the questions they asked was, uh, and this was a national sample, do you expect uh, the COVID virus to flare up again into a second wave? 75% of this national sample said yes, we expect it with either certainty or somewhat certainty. And yet we know, we see bars, we see beaches where people are not protecting themselves. And compliance is probably the make it or break it factor here, because we know that if you wear a mask, if you're physically distant, and, and if you stay home, if you're sick, you can pretty much control the outbreak of the virus. 
So I'm asking you as the governor and from a leadership perspective, how do you encourage compliance? How do you get people to behave in a way that doesn't force us to close down again? Not with the heavy hand of the law, but by um, doing everything I can with my bully pulpit to convince people um, it's not about your health, it's about the health of your family, it's about the health of your community, it's the right thing to do. A mask is less about uh, keeping you safe than all those around you. And uh, so far, Connecticut has been relatively better at um, maintaining, um, uh, keeping up the guard compared to a lot of other states. But you're right, I mean, um, what was it, the Lake of the Ozarks down there in Arkansas? We saw, that was a month ago. And, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, um, you know, frolicking. and. Um, you know, just keeping our, ourselves, our guard up for just another month makes a world of difference. Now, we're thinking about the possibility of another flare-up. Um, most of the um, experts I've talked to have said, think about, you know, November. That could be another flu season. I, I don't know about um, Quinnipiac, but I know some of the colleges are thinking maybe they're going to go through Thanksgiving, then there'll be a pause. Sounds like that's what you're thinking about as well. We're going to finish the semester, the last two weeks of the semester at home. But Judy, it's a funny world. I mean, one month before we got hit by COVID, we had thousands of protesters all over the Capitol saying, don't make me get a vaccination. You can't make me do it. It's my body, uh, et cetera. And then we got hit with this uh, pandemic. Obviously, now we're thinking about the fall. If more people got a flu shot, um, more people get tested. We're going to try and make that university available. And then eventually we're going to have a vaccine, but it only works if people take it, right? And do you have an expectation of what the rate of vaccination would be, assuming it was widely available? I know you hope that it's 100%. I can tell you for the flu vaccine last year, we were less than 50% in this state. Yeah. Uh, there's a certain libertarian street that says, uh, you know, out of my way, my body, um, not yours. Um, well, but we've got to be careful because how you treat yourself deals with the entire public health of a community. Well, I can tell you, Quinnipiac is doing its share. We're going to have flu shots available to everybody, as we do every year. But you're right, not everyone takes them, at least on Quinnipiac's uh, dime. Now, many people do it uh, with their own doctors. I'm going to shift to another um, topic and a very sad topic. And I want to ask you your reaction as both a private citizen and then as our leader, as our governor, to the George Floyd, George Floyd murder, to shootings before Mr. Floyd, to the Rashad Brooks shooting, to many more. How did this hit you? Well, it hits me the same as a governor and as a private citizen. Um, but I'd say I just saw the um, anger and angst in people's eyes after George Floyd. You know, I, I get around a lot. And just uh, people could not believe that here we are again, you know, Rodney King and Martin Luther King. And how can this, how can we never make progress on this? And then there are folks who are terribly angry. There are folks who are sad and depressed and frustrated. One of the folks I had to sit down with early were our state police. And I said, this is about you. It's about policing. And, and there are these protests. And we thought about the trust, and you've got to, you've got to maintain the trust and build the trust. And uh, our head, head of state police, without any prompting from me, promptly wrote a letter to all the police um, in the state, especially the state police. And it was very clear and very blunt and spoke from his heart. He's a big, white, tough guy, but it spoke from his heart. He said, um, 
uh, fellow policemen, if you're not shocked and outraged by uh, what you saw on the um, George Floyd video, if you're not shocked and outraged, turn in your badge. You don't belong on our force. And all the laws that we can pass, I thought that spoke um, so clearly to people. And uh, I'm, I'm just thankful that we all shared the goals of the protest, but the protests were peaceful. In many cases, uh, our police were taking a knee or walking off um, arm in arm. And um, now I, I have an opportunity to do something about it. We're gonna do something about it in terms of police accountability. And then more broadly, as we think about justice going forward, make sure people know they have a place at our table. And, and so we are at a, at a moment in, in, in this nation's history where there's been enough talk and people are looking for actions. And from your bully pulpit as the governor, what, what do you think the actions are gonna be that are gonna make a difference? Outside of the specific legislation about um, community policing and video body cams and um, the, the most important things I'm trying to do is say, you've got a government that, that reflects the amazing diversity of our community. We have an administration where everybody can look up and see somebody like them. Uh, I've got to do a better job with the state police. They're 80% white guys, right? And, uh, but the incoming class that we recruited about six months ago, we have twice as many um, women and people of color. So we're doing more to give people that sense. We got a lot of work to do with judges and juries uh, and, and really teachers. I, I, you, you can tell me about Quinnipiac, but um, I want to make sure we have a teacher court. We, almost 50% of our kids in elementary school are um, black and brown and maybe 10% um, of their teachers are black and brown. And I was just doing a forum with somebody else today and, um, and the mayor said, well, it's really important if you have, you have a, a child of color, it's really important that they see a teacher that looks like them. And I said, yeah, but it's also really important that a white student see a teacher doesn't look just like them. And together we learn. Those are sort of the bigger things I'm trying to get across. Yeah, and from our perspective, we totally agree with you that we have to have more diversity of our role models, but we also have to have more diversity within the educational community. We're trying to attract people uh, with support, access uh, through financial aid, of people who wouldn't naturally see a Quinnipiac as their destination. But the other, the other thing, and, uh, and I know I'm supposed to be interviewing you as opposed to you listening to me, I think that um, themes of social justice and, and, and the legacy of racism in the country as part of the curriculum is a real awakening to folks that have not been exposed to that. I've heard from some of our students, some of our white students who said, the, those were the best classes I took because they they raised consciousness that I never had. So so I, I think we can really take some actions that will um, make a difference. And a question relate you talked about policing and funding and so on. So how do you think about the the tension and and making decisions about funding for law enforcement or funding? directed at the very social services or, or community resources to address some of the underlying causes of, of poverty and, and sometimes crime that is associated with that. So um, how do you think through the balance or the tension among those choices of supporting communities and supporting law enforcement? We're asking our police, I think, to do too much. Um, it's a... Um 
drug addiction, it's domestic abuse, it's mental health. All of a sudden, it's cops bursting in, trying to solve the incredible myriad of reasons that people call 911 and a police person responds. So one of the things that we are trying to do, Judy, is make sure our social service community is more involved in the nature of these responses. You know, really, sometimes you really need a mental health uh, person, or sometimes you need somebody who focuses on uh, addiction. And uh, maybe you need a policeman there as well, because there's a public safety aspect to it. Uh, so I think um, that's one of the ways I think about um, how we can uh, keep the public safety. Sometimes you need a minister or somebody from the community who knows these kids. Um, you know, New Haven's pretty good at this. Waterbury's really good at this. They got this amazing police athletic league where um, the kids, when they're, uh, you know, nine years old, are playing softball with a, a cop. And then, um, you know, tw 15 years later, that same kid is, uh, you know, in a joyride in a stolen car. The cop could always look him in the eye and say, you were knucklehead as a second baseman. You're still being a knucklehead. It changes the nature of those relationships. And that's what we work on every day. That's what good policing is all about. Yeah, and, and we have found that our public safety and police here at Quinnipiac are as much educators as they are public safety officials. And when they use that language, they really resolve so many issues that might otherwise escalate. I, I went to the graduation exercise for corrections officers. And, uh, you know, there were uh, 100 folks there. And, you know, I thought, okay, these are folks who are going to go uh, be guards at prisons. And then you realize that um, there were mental health professionals, there were academic professionals, they were serving, there were a lot of workforce training people, and maybe half of them were traditional in the sense of what you think about in terms of guards. So we're really widening the scope of what we try and do in these different areas. As you know, um, our prisons have become sometimes places where all mental health gets shoved to, for example. Yeah, we're very fortunate that an ex um, law enforcement person uh, is a professor of sociology with us, Kalfani Toomey. He's been all around the press now commenting, but that gives such great insights into the criminal justice system. There's a question here from uh, a person in the audience who says, you know, we're in a polarized society like never before, uh, where we have people at the extremes and fewer people talking in the middle. How can you, as our, as our state leader, really bridge those divides, especially related to racism and public health issues? Talk clearly in terms of what I believe. Don't get involved in a lot of Trump stuff. I mean, that, that comes up all the time. It just polarizes people. Uh, and, um, and think out loud. Uh, that, that's what I try and do. Look, we, there's incredible polarities. In the legislature, it's, it's, it's across the bounds. Um, when it came to COVID, just to go back to that, you know, we were telling everybody, stay, stay, stay at home. And uh, the White House was saying, um, don't worry about it. And the masks are sort of a nuisance. And we just tried to talk with a unified voice, as I said before, the business and the, um, the politicians and um, the academic community. So we had a unified voice that gave people a certain sense of direction. And uh, I usually don't talk much about Republicans and Democrats. You know, governor's a different type of job than that. So I'm going to go back to COVID and the changes that may happen after COVID, changes in, the, in where the workplace is, and, and frankly, the way, the way we live fundamentally. So what do you see the changes being that are going to be lasting? What do you see the opportunities, the innovation that's coming out of this 
especially for Connecticut. Yeah, if we don't learn from this, uh, shame on us. Um, I, I think the biggest transformation is everybody's taking a second look at Connecticut. You know, remember uh, five years ago, I, I, you know, I'm a young professional. I want to be in a big major metropolitan area. That's where all the cool people are. And, and right now, I think um, people are taking a second look at Connecticut. They love a, you know, a nice mid-sized city that's very walkable. They maybe like having a, a house with a small backyard. They think it's a lot safer going forward. They realize after um, 90 days of telecommuting, you may not have to be in that big city five days a week. Maybe five days a month is what. So I think people are taking a, a definitely a second look at Connecticut. I think... Um, Healthcare is going to be dramatically changed. Everything from our Department of Children and Families, they, they deal with the foster kids, uh, right through to our schools. I think we're finding um, FaceTime and Zoom and telelearning are going to be a much bigger piece of what we got to do. Our doctors were really, you know, not too happy about um, telehealth. They are now. They're saying it's amazing how easy it is for me to um, stay in contact with a patient and how much I can get done electronically. So I got to make sure that that is easier for people to do. And I've heard you mention, um, you know, um, I learning and uh, telelearning quite a bit, you know, distance learning. And I think you're going to find that universities change. It'll be more of a hybrid model over the next 10 years, if I had to guess. Well, certainly a more flexible model that'll give people a lot of choices, including adults that wouldn't be able to come back to, to school. And we have to be in a lifetime of learning. Um, do you see K through 12 changing in terms of that was a question that one of our audience asked after COVID. How do you see that changing? I think K through eight is going to be more of a traditional classroom experience. I just hear from every teacher I talk to, the kids need that socialization. Uh, obviously, there'll be a little more electronic learning, and we're really trying to do everything we can to bridge that digital divide because the kids in the suburb did a lot of um distance learning. Some of the urban kids didn't have that same access. You know, high school, I think, will be much more of a hybrid model. You know, for this coming year, I'm not sure whether everybody can go back every day to high school. There may be one day a week where just to maintain social distancing, we'll ask you to telelearn. Yeah, there are questions in here. Also, people are, have concerns about what you said, the digital divide, but also mental health and, and disability concerns with telelearning and telehealth, frankly. So do you see us being able to bridge that gap? I think we have to, don't we? Um, yeah. I mean, fortunately, we have incredibly generous people who donated tens of thousands of laptops for kids. We're working with the IT folks at um, you know, Verizon and the such, making sure they create hotspots so that kids in urban areas get access there. Uh, you know, Judy, for me, it's a you know, little bit strange. But I think uh, for the younger kids, they take to it like a duck to water. I, I think they're really going to be able to um, make the most out of an environment like this. It will broaden the education lens, but it doesn't replace what you're doing on campus. Well, and, and it can bring in some whole new experiences of learning that you wouldn't have if you were just in bricks and mortar. So we hope that it's an and as opposed to instead of. And we believe that we will uh, be able to deliver that. One more question on COVID-19 and changing events. Have any of your priorities changed as a result of COVID-19 for the state? For example, there is a big racial divide in terms of um, illness rates associated with, uh, with COVID-19. 
perhaps also because of access to healthcare. So has, has anything changed in your priority set as we move out of this COVID-19 crisis, hopefully sooner rather than later? I think so. I came into office, we were a state that uh, hadn't had a new job in 30 years. We're sort of uh, economically um, slow off the draw. A lot of young people were leaving. So I, I, I looked at everything through that lens. I was sort of a business guy, so that made me look through the lens. What can I do to create jobs, opportunity? And I think um, looking at the incredible disparities that COVID has revealed, uh, health disparities, um, twice as likely to die of COVID if you um, are Black or Hispanic, um, has made me realize that um, economic growth is not an end in itself. It just reminds you that it better be a tide that lifts all ships and we can't leave anybody behind. What is it that you think you'll be able to affect? How, how are you going to change things? Uh, we're going to change things uh, by um, focusing like a laser beam on education, getting those kids back, giving them uh, you know, some hopes and dreams. I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story I heard. Talk about uh, self-reflections. I never quite understood African-American studies. And, and I, I thought, hey, American studies, this is what it is. And I was there with the minister this morning. He said, here's what I want for African-American studies. I want my um, you know, black brothers and sisters, their kids to say that they, their, their history doesn't begin with slavery. It begins with uh, when maybe their forebears were um, princes and uh, kings in Africa and had an amazing culture. This, this is how you give people aspirations and give them something they can reach for, um, reach higher. Uh, that resonated with me. Yeah. You're going to make, and you have made, controversial decisions where you don't get unanimity and you might not even get a large majority of people who support you. When, when you wade into controversial decisions and you know you're going to get backlash, I mean, that's the mark of leadership. How do you, how do you think about controversy and how you're going to make the decision despite the backlash? I do the right thing and then figure out how to explain it to people so you mitigate uh, the backlash and you get some uh, buy-in uh, around what you got to do. It was sort of interesting. Um, COVID happened so fast. The uh, legislature gave me a, you know, big executive powers because if you're closing down parts of the economy, um, you know, deciding where the testing's got to go, now reopening parts of the economy. You couldn't do that by a vote in the state Senate every day. So um, I really appreciate their having confidence in me, but every day you had to make um, a real life decision with you know, only half the facts in front of you. And, uh, but you have to decide. And uh, so I appreciate they gave me um, the flexibility to do that. Now we have a little more time to, to make a longer term decisions. Legislature will help uh, you know, broaden our decision making. Does the um, fact that somebody's in the newspaper every day saying he made that decision, that wasn't a good decision, or even that was a lousy decision, does that ever get wearing? Or you just say, part of the process? Well, it gets wearing in the sense that um, I make a recommendation a lot of people take hot shots from the legislature, for example. Then you say, well, that doesn't help because I'm trying to build a consensus behind this. Um, don't write a letter. Don't do a press conference. Why don't you just come on in and let's talk about it? So I get a little frustrated in that sense. You do what you think is right and you move forward. I recently read a biography of Churchill who was talking about his leadership style and, he, and, and, and the way he did speeches. And they analyzed it and they said, he usually started, I mean, this was during the war, 
with brutally honest and tough news, tough news, not good news. And then he would end with his optimism about the future, the fact that Britain would prevail, that the, the, the people of Britain would prevail, that they were resilient, that they were strong. Does that approach to leadership communication resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. I think it does resonate. Uh, that, and that's just what Churchill did. But he was an optimist. I was an entrepreneur. How could I sell anything? I'm not an optimist about what I believe. Now I believe in the state of Connecticut and how our best days are ahead of us. And um, you got to end on that. But as you quoted Churchill, you also got to tell people the truth. But don't end on the bad truth. Uh, take that up front and give them something to believe in at the end. I think, I think he's always right. So you're a lifelong learner, and, and I know you've been involved in universities for much of your life. Um, you're now 18 months in to this. Probably it feels like 18 years, the last three months. Um, what have you learned? What are you going to change from what you've learned these last 18 months? I've learned that um, the people of Connecticut can take the tough medicine and, and do the right thing if you... Um, if you tell them honestly why you're making this recommendation, why you think it's the right thing to do. Um, I, I spent maybe a little too much the first year always dealing with every single legislator. I think it's important to talk to the people of the state of Connecticut. And I think um, we worked our way through this pandemic uh, pretty well, knock on wood, uh, because of that. And, um, and also, don't be afraid to confront big things. This is a state that generally likes to avoid controversy land of steady habits. We still have some big things we gotta do and I gotta um, do a better job of convincing folks it's worth taking that risk and going forward. Anything you're gonna change based on what you did before that you're not gonna do or you're gonna change in terms of priorities? Uh, I think expect the unexpected. I got one thing, I don't, um, don't think uh, you can predict what the next two weeks or two months is going to be and uh, be ready to move. I, I think the main thing I have learned is get a bigger table. I think if I had a leadership idea, a bigger table. That means, you know, in Hartford, they usually think of the gay Republicans and Democrats. But, you know, I'm really thinking of uh, the widest diversity of people there. That's how you get a better decision. You know, COVID, again, it was the academic, it was the healthcare, it was the business community at the table. Together we banged heads. Let's face it, there were some real arguments. And I think some of the healthcare guys never wanted us to open because uh, we didn't have a vaccine. And uh, some of the business guys said, we are going bankrupt. We got to take a risk. And so, but you bang it through and you work for it. And we came up with a reasonable way to go that maintained public health is number one. Before I ask the last question, um, there's a, a question here from a, a, a viewer that says, do you have any idea what's going to happen to college athletics in the state? Yeah, I was talking to um, the head of UConn. I'd, I'd love to hear Quinnipiac. And they said, we're bringing back our athletes, whatever it is, in the next two or three weeks. And they're going to start practicing in football or whatever it might be. But they're going to they're practice, first of all, in groups of 10. So they're going to be sort of separated so that if um, – Somebody is infected. It's not the entire team that has to go down. It's just uh, those 10 people. Uh, we start up with the Travelers Golf Tournament in about 10 days. So that's going to be one of the first major PGA events in the country right here in Connecticut. And uh, it's not going to be in front of a live audience. So um, I believe sports is a big part of what we do, but you've got to do it carefully. And um, I think if we maintain the metrics as we have now, we're going to have a sports season in the fall. A sports season with or without spectators. 
I would think you'd have spectators. I mean, if it's a little league baseball and you got some parents um, on different sides of the field, that's okay. Uh, I guess at a football game, um, if people can keep a little distance, a little tough because you're shouting your heart out and shouting is what spreads the virus. So um, can I get back on that? What about our beloved Yale um, Quinnipiac hockey game? Inside. Oh man, that's one, man, of, that's one of the games in sports. Uh, I've been to a number of them, and um, I got I to gotta pray and believe that um, by January, February, if we're not on the backside of the worst of this thing, if we're not getting back to a new normal, uh, Judy, we've got real problems as a state, as a country. Yeah, from your mouth to God's ears, as they say. And I'm going to end with the last question, Governor. Um, when you ultimately look back and reflect on your terms, plural, as governor, um, what will success have meant for you in, in this role? I mean, what, what do you want your mark to be? At the highest level, get people believing in the state again. Remember uh, five years ago, GE's out of here, this state's a mess, uh, last one out, turn out the lights. And that became sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy when it came to getting young people here, when it came to starting up businesses here. So, you know, like you said with Churchill, you know, end with, end with something optimism. Uh, but you, you got to match deeds with words. And we got to show that we're making progress every day. And the George Floyd reminds us progress is not necessarily a straight line, but it doesn't mean you don't get up every day and do a little bit better. And um, I, you know, I, I moved to the state, so I love the state as somebody who adopted it. And, um, and that's what I'd like to see at the end of uh, my time here, that uh, people are believing the state and that belief is reflected in better performance for everybody. Well, we really uh, thank you and admire your leadership during this especially difficult period, it's really uh, dependent on leaders that have protected the health and well-being of the community. And I'm grateful to you that you've done that. So thank you, Governor. And um, we will work with you to make sure that we continue this downward slide in terms of contagion and keep bringing the economy back and our students back. Let me just remind everybody that um our university system is one of Connecticut's amazing assets. Quinnipiac is at the very top of that list in terms of what you mean, how you introduce people to the state of Connecticut, educate them. Hopefully they stay here. And I look forward to seeing you at that Yale Quinnipiac game this winter. Thank you. You're on. Be well. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont. I'm Judy Olian, president of Quinnipiac University. The Way Forward event series is directed by Carla Natali, and the podcast series is produced by David DeRoche. To learn more about our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Again, qu.edu slash podcast. Join us for our next episode, where Dr. Monique Drucker and I interview Stuart Bainham, chairman of Choice Hotels, one of the country's largest hotel chains, on the future of travel and hospitality. Until then, keep moving forward.